The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, morning, Bereans. We're continuing to work our way through 1 Thessalonians. And last week we looked at... uh, Chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, and I entitled it, Yahweh's Wrath on Christ's Killers. And what I want to do this morning is come back and look at that text again, but just basically focus on the last statement in chapter 16. Let's look at that passage again. Paul says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And Paul mentions the persecution that was going on in the Judean church, and that they're suffering from the hands of the Jews. And it's like when he says the word Jews, it triggers triggers him. And he's got this abrupt change, and he launches into this tirade against the Jews. It's like he says, the Jews. Then he says, who killed both the Lord Yeshua and the prophets, drove us out, displeased God, opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now, has come here, that's a past tense, all right? The verb phano is an aorist indicative, so it's talking about something that's happened. Uh, The use of the aorist tense, I believe, affirms that it what now we know that the wrath hasn't happened, but he talks about it as it has because it's so inevitable, it's so certain that it can be spoken of as if it's already taken place. Theologians call this a prophetic perfect. What I think Paul's referring to here is the Great Tribulation. He knew it was coming, he knew it was coming on Israel. Twenty years earlier. Then Paul's statement here, Yeshua predicted wrath. He predicted the great tribulation would come upon Israel. So Paul could speak of it as a past event because Yeshua prophesied about it, which meant it's certain. If he said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. He said it was going to happen within the generation, which was 40 years. So we know it was coming. And so Paul speaks at it of it as if it has already happened. Wrath has come upon. The Lord Yeshua said this, in Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be great tribulation. Now watch what he says here. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So the Lord's saying this is the worst tribulation there ever was. Nothing past, nothing future is going to beat this. Now, let's get some context here. It's dangerous just to pull verses out. In Matthew 24... Yeshua is answering the disciples' questions about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They wanted to know, when's this going to be destroyed? And and what are the signs that would precede the end of the age and the parousia? Look at Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Yeshua left the temple. And as He was going away, when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple... Okay, you got the context. He's leaving the temple. The disciples say, look at these buildings. I mean, this thing was massive and it was a fortress. And it was beautiful. All right, and they're pointing out these buildings, you know, this is Yahweh's dwelling place. But he answered them, you see all these? 
That's the buildings, the temple. You see that? That's what they're talking about. Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That would be devastating news to a Jew. This temple, this house of God, this is where God dwells, this beautiful place that's a fortress. How would this, how is this even possible? They would be shocked by that. Verse 3, he says, And he, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, Mount Olives was just east of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley. It's about a mile in length um, and about 700 feet high, and it overlooks Jerusalem. So from its summit, almost every part of the city could be seen. This walk uphill with sandals would have taken them 15 to 30 minutes. So during this time, they're no doubt talking and thinking about what Yeshua had just said to them about the temple being destroyed. Again, that would have been devastating news for them and how their house would be left desolate. Well, once they get up on the mountain, Yeshua sits down, the disciples approach him, and they question him about this issue of the temple's destruction. Now, according to Mark 13.3, the questions were asked by Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Matthew and Mark say they came privately. Now, in both Matthew and Mark, this is used, I think, to set the disciples apart from the crowds, not from each other. I think that this means that they were the ones who raised the questions, not that they were the only ones present at that time. And their question is twofold. First they ask, when will this be? And all three of the synoptic Gospels ask this question. Matthew, when will these things be? That these things is the destruction of the temple. All right. Again, Mark says, tell us when these things be. And again, Luke. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? Now, there's no John in here, because John's not part of the synoptics. John does have an Olivet Discourse. Where is it? <laughs> it's the book of Revelation. Okay? That's, that's the whole... John deals with that in, in the whole book of Revelation. Now, the these things here refers to the temple's destruction from verse 2. In verse 1, the disciples point out the buildings to Yeshua. In verse 2, he says... All these things shall be destroyed. So it should be clear they're asking, when's the temple going to be destroyed? When will our house be left desolate? After all, Yeshua had just said about judgment coming on Jerusalem in Matthew 23, and then about not one stone being left upon another, the disciples' simple response is, when? That makes sense, doesn't it? I sure hope so. It's the second part of the question that gets a little trickier. In the second part of the question, they said, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, to help us understand their question, we need to compare all three synoptics again. Matthew says, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They connected those, all right? You've got to see that. Those things are connected. Christ coming, the age ending. Mark says, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, we just talked about these things being the destruction of the temple, so that all these things are going to be accomplished. And then Luke says, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? So if you compare all three accounts, it shows us that the disciples considered His coming and the end of the age 
to be identical events with the destruction of the temple. So you got to get that. They connected these. Temple destroyed, Christ coming, end of the age. They're all connected. Now see, if the temple's destroyed, it's the end of the age because their age revolved around the temple. So the temple's gone, the age ends. All right? Not the world, the age. Mark 13, 4 says, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now notice in the first part of the verse, he says, When will these things be? Referring to the temple's destruction. Then in the second half, he asks, What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? The sign of His coming and the end of the age was the same as these things, which referred to the destruction of the temple. This happened in the year A.D. 70. Now, these are not separate questions that can be divided up into different time events. The disciples had one thing and only one thing on their mind, and that was the destruction of their temple, the house of God. With the destruction of the temple, they connected Messiah's coming, His presence, and the end of the age. Now, after talking about the abomination of desolation, which was Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Yeshua taught about the Great Tribulation. In Matthew 24, He talks about the abomination of desolation. Then He talks about the Great Tribulation. So, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is the Great Tribulation something that looms in our future? Or is it a past event? Now, the majority of the church is looking forward to the Great Tribulation. I don't understand that, but it's yet future to most people, all right? But Matthew 24 is not talking about some event in our future. He's talking to His disciples about something that took place in their day and time. The Scriptures are clear that the Great Tribulation is past. I'm sorry, I hate to disappoint you. I know you're going to miss out on it. But it happened in the first century. Because it dealt with Jerusalem. Not the world. Jerusalem, the city of God, the people of God. In Matthew 24, 21, he says, For then there will be great tribulation. Then is when? Within a few thousand years? No, the then is found in the context of verses 15 through 20, when Yeshua told his disciples that when they saw the abomination of desolation, look at verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. The abomination of desolation was the surrounding of Jerusalem by armies. We see that in Luke 21. They were to know when they saw that that its desolation was near. Now, doesn't that make sense? you got an army surrounding the city. Uh, guess what? We're in trouble. Now, this happened in AD 67 when Celsius Gaius, Gallus, the Roman general, laid siege to Jerusalem. The Great Tribulation, therefore, is not an event that's future to us. It occurred then. It occurred during the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in the first century. And I think this is made abundantly clear in the parallel text in Luke's Gospel. Look what Luke says in Luke 21. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. Okay, you can put that together, right? You got that. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I want you to hang on to that thought for a second. We're going to look at something later, some woman who disobeyed this and suffered greatly because she did. This, is, this is, would be against your natural instincts, okay? 
Because Jerusalem was a fortress, high walls, stone walls, thick walls. And you would see, okay, a battle's coming. What do you do? You run into the fort. No, he said, don't do that. Let those who are in Judea flee. Go to the mountains. Get away. Let those who are inside the city get out of there. Depart. That doesn't make any sense. And let those who are in, out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. This people is Israel. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, now earth here, this is the particular, this tribulation will come upon the earth. And that's not a really good translation here. The, the Greek word here is gay, and it should be translated the land. And the land was a designation for Israel and wrath against this people. This people refers to the Jews of the first century. It has nothing to do with the world future to us. Sorry, I forgot to put my phone on silent. Let me do that, so I don't get interrupted along the way. <laughs> Verse 24 gives us some added details as to what exactly would happen in the Great Tribulation. And we'll look at that more closely in a few moments. Right now, I want to look at 20, Luke 21, 22, this important verse. He says, these are the days of vengeance. This is the vengeance of God upon Jerusalem, now watch, to fulfill all that is written. What does that mean? What is it? He's saying that everything written will be fulfilled in the destruction. What's he mean by that? Well, all that is written refers to all prophecy. So what he is saying here is that all prophecy was to be fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. When that city fell, prophecy is done. It's fulfilled. Daniel said the very same thing in Daniel 9.24. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. That's Daniel's people. Those are Israel, the Jews. And your holy city, that's Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring about everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So Daniel's told 70 weeks are determined on his people, on the city, and by the end of this prophetic period, by the end of these 70 weeks, God promised that six things would be accomplished here. And one of the things that Daniel told him would happen in that period is Seal both vision and profit. Now, what is so interesting about this is if you pick up any commentary, almost everybody is in agreement on this, which that's rare in itself. Okay, that's short of a miracle right there. But the commentaries are in agreement, the Hebrew commentaries, that the meaning of seal both vision and profit, it means the end and complete fulfillment of all prophecy. It means no more prophecy will be written, and what has been written will all be fulfilled. Like I said, dispensationalists even agree that that's what this means. So Daniel's prophecy then tells of a time when all prophecy would cease to be given, and the stuff that had been given would be fulfilled. Well, what would this be? Well, Daniel's vision ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, and we know that occurred in AD 70. 
Look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, that's Jerusalem. Its end shall come with the flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So Luke is clearly saying the same thing that Daniel said. At the time that Jerusalem is destroyed, all prophecy will be fulfilled. What does that include? Well, that would include all prophecy. Second coming, resurrection, new heavens and new earth. You pick it out. You figure it out. Whatever prophecy it is, it's completed. It's finished. Now, it doesn't mean it ends and that's the end of it. Okay? Because the new covenant was consummated at that time and then it's ongoing. It just basically began. It was a 40-year transition period. Then we entered the new covenant in its consummated state and we go on. So there's ongoing ramifications for this prophecy, but the prophecy itself ended at Jerusalem's destruction. Now look at Daniel 12.1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Huh? It should, okay, Because that's exactly what Yeshua said. All right, Daniel says there will be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. Yeshua says, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be. All right, so he's making it very clear. Daniel's talking about this tribulation. Yeshua's talking about the tribulation. Now notice the next verse in Daniel. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is referring to the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, and it happens at the time of Jerusalem's destruction, as does the second coming. This is so important for us to understand. The completion of the plan of redemption and the fulfillment of all prophecy were tied up with the visible destruction of Jerusalem. This, when Jerusalem was destroyed, it's not, oh, another city got destroyed. This is an age-changing event. Israel was God's people. 1,600 years they'd been God's people. God protected them. God led them. This was their home. This was God's house. It ended in AD 70. They ended being the people of God. Jerusalem ended up being the city of God. It is done. It it was over. It ended then. Now, William Kimball, in his book, What the Bible Says About the Great Tribulation, said this. This period of great tribulation is not an event which the entire world is yet awaiting, but a past historic event of unparalleled, concentrated severity, specifically afflicting the Jewish nation in AD 70. If this is, you know, most Christians today think this is a global event. It's going to happen all across the world. The Great Tribulation is going to affect the whole world. Then why would the Lord say, flee to the mountains? <laughs> what, what, are, what good are going to, being in the mountains going to have for you if this is happening across everywhere, Okay. Eusebius of Caesarea, who lived in the 3rd century, said this. He believed that the flight of the Christians, the abomination of desolation, and the great tribulation were all connected with the events 
leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. All right. Now let's look at exactly what did happen in AD 70 and see if this fits in what Yeshua says about a great tribulation and about the days of vengeance. Here's what we got to understand. Most Christians are totally unfamiliar with AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. Okay? They don't even know what happened. They don't know anything about it. They've never heard about it. Okay? And so they'd be, because they're unfamiliar, they don't understand how could that be a tribulation, the tribulation's future. We all know that. The book of, Lakes, the book of Revelation said it's happening soon, right? It's happening soon. Well, here's the thing. Because all the Bible was written prior to AD 70, it only predicts the events of Jerusalem's fall. So in order to find out what happened after A.D. 70, we have to look to history. That's the only way we know, because the Bible predicted it, but the Bible was written before that. Most of the history I want to look at this morning comes from Josephus. Now, Josephus was a Jew. He was a historian. He lived and wrote during the time of the fall of Jerusalem. He lived during the war. He basically was a Jew who became a traitor and went over to the Roman side. And the Romans said, hey, we want you to take note of all this stuff. I'll go around and take notes and write down what we're, what's going on here. So he, he cataloged the war, basically. All right. In the preface, in his book, The Preface to the War of the Jews, he writes this. Whereas the war which the Jews made with the Romans. Get that. Look what he's saying here. The war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner those that were ever heard of. Again, does that sound familiar? Josephus was not a Christian, but he agrees with Yeshua's words that this was the greatest of all tribulations, the greatest of all wars ever heard of. What was it that caused the war? I think many Christians think that Rome just decided to crush the Jews, so they laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed it. Well, that's not the case. Notice a verse in Daniel. We looked at these, but let's look at them again. And after the 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. All right, you see what he's saying there? The people of the prince are going to destroy it. Who are the people of the prince? Well, we got to back up to verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be 70 weeks. Okay? So we have in verse 25 an anointed one, the Messiah, that is, the Messiah, Mashiach, a prince. And then we have the people of the prince. So, in verse 26, the nearest antecedent of the coming prince, in verse 26, would carry us back to verse 25, who is the Messiah, the prince, who was cut off. So, Christ is the only prince in this context, all right? So, who would be the people of the prince? That's the Jewish people, okay? That's the Jewish people. They were the ones responsible for the destruction of the city and the temple in AD 70. We gotta, please, you gotta grasp that. The Jewish people are the ones being blamed here. 
the people of the prince who is to come, they're going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. All right? Now, Rome didn't initiate the war against Jerusalem. The zealots within Jerusalem had incited the Jews to rebel. Rebel against Rome. Quit paying your taxes. You know, go against Rome. So they did. They rebelled. And a recurring theme in Josephus' work on the Roman War is the clear imputation of guilt upon the Jews themselves for starting the war. He blamed the Jews for this. Josephus wrote, However, I will not go to the other extreme out of opposition to those men who extol the Romans, nor will I determine to raise the actions of my countrymen too high. But I will prosecute the actions of both parties with accuracy. Yet I shall suit my language to the passions I am under, as to the affairs I describe, and must be allowed to indulge some lamentation upon the miseries undergone by my own country, for that it was a seditious tempter of our own that destroyed it. So he's saying, listen, it's our fault. You know, the, the seditious attempter, they raised, they got these people all fired up. And that they were the tyrants among the Jews who brought the Roman power upon us. So it's the people within the city, it's the Jews themselves, who unwittingly attacked us and occasioned the burning of our holy temple. Titus Caesar, who destroyed it, is himself a witness who during the entire war pitied the people who were kept under by seditions and did often voluntarily delay the taking of the city and allowed time to the siege in order to let the authors have opportunity for repentance. Accordingly, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to those of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were while the authors of them were not foreigners neither. So he's saying, listen, my own countrymen were responsible for this. This was their doing. The Jews rebelled by ceasing to one of the ways, but they quit paying taxes, they refused to offer sacrifices to Caesar, or for Caesar, I should say. And Josephus says that this was the beginning of the war. He says, and at this time, it was that some of those that principally excited the people to go to war made an assault upon the certain fortress called Masada. They took it by treachery and slew the Romans that were there and put others of their own party to keep it. At the same time, Eleazar, the son of Ananias, the high priest, a very bold youth, who was at that time governor of the temple, persuaded those that officiated in the divine service to receive no gift or sacrifice for any foreigner. No more sacrifices made for foreigners, okay? And this was the true beginning of our war with the Romans. For they rejected the sacrifice of Caesar on this account, and when many of the high priests and principal men besought them not to omit the sacrifice, which it was customary for them to offer, For their princes, they would not be prevailed upon. These relied much upon their multitude, for the most flourishing part of the innovators assisted them. But they had the chief regard to Eliezer, the governor of the temple. So again, the Jews are being blamed. They started all this stuff. The city was full of wickedness, and the people appointed their own priests that didn't fit any... 
They didn't have any lineage. They shouldn't have been priests. They just appointed who they wanted. It just was so wicked. And Josephus records the high priest, Annas, as saying, Certainly it had been good for me to die before I had seen the house of God full of so many abominations. The wickedness within the city was great. The city was in a civil war. The city is under siege. Okay, The Romans are surrounding it. And with inside, they're fighting and killing each other. So the Romans just they don't have to do anything, okay? Josephus tells us what went on in the city. He says that indeed many there were of the Jews that deserted every day and fled away from the zealots, although their flight was very difficult since they had guarded every passage out of the city and slew everyone that was caught at them. So anyone trying to leave the city, the zealots were just killing them, okay? You're not going. As, as taking it for granted, they were going over to the Romans, You know, you're leaving us, you're a traitor, we're going to kill you. Along all the roads, also vast numbers of dead bodies lay in heaps. And even many of those that were so zealous in deserting at length chose rather to perish within the city. So outside the city, you got just piles of dead bodies rotting. For the hopes of burial made death in their own city appear of the two less terrible to them. In other words... When you die out there, you don't even get buried. So we'll just, I guess we'll just stick it around in here. But the zealots came at last to the degree of barbarity as to not bestow a burial either on those slain in the city or those that lay along the roads. But as if they had made an agreement to cancel both the laws of their own country and the laws of nature, and at the same time they defiled men with their wicked actions, they would pollute the divinity itself also. They left the dead bodies to putrefy under the sun. And the same punishment was allotted such as buried any as to those that deserted. Now you hear what he's saying? If you got caught burying somebody, you got killed. Okay? We don't, we're not burying anybody, just let them out in the sun, let them rot. Which was no other than death. While he that granted the favor of the grave to another would presently stand in need of a grave himself. Okay, we're going to kill you if you try to bury someone. He said, nay, the terror was so very great that he who survived called them that were first dead happy. As being at rest already as did those that were under torture in the prisons, declare that upon this comparison, those that lay unburied were the happiest. See, in light of what Josephus says here about the dead bodies lying in heaps and rotting in the sun, listen to the prophecy of Amos in Amos 8, 1-4. This is what the Lord Yahweh showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then Yahweh said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I said, this is it. This is the end of Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord Yahweh. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence, hear this, you who trample on the needy. And bring the poor of the land to an end. So Amos prophesied this is going to happen. All right? Why was this happening to Israel? Well, the reason this was happening is they had broken the covenant with God. All right? 
They had turned from God, and so they were suffering a covenantal judgment. This is so important that we get this. Look at Deuteronomy 28. Now, if you're not familiar with Deuteronomy 28, he lays out, Moses lays out for Israel the blessings and cursings. The first 14 verses are blessing. Then from 15 down to 60-some, curses. Cursed here, cursed there. Cur- I mean, if you read it, it's terrifying. It really is, okay? But Deuteron- Deuteronomy 28, 15 says, talking to Israel here, but if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. All right, if you're not going to be obedient, you're going to suffer for it. All right, all these curses are going to come upon you. They're going to overtake you. Look at verse 63. As Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, watch this, so Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Josephus writes that there were three different factions in the city. Killing each other, burning each other's supplies, just, I mean, doing the Romans' work for them, so the Romans didn't have to do anything, okay? They're just killing themselves. Now, the destruction of an immense quantity of corn and other provisions by the rebels was the direct occasion of the terrible famine that consumed an incredible number of Jews during this siege. So they basically burned up their own supplies in the civil war that's going on within the city. Josephus says, Accordingly, it so came to pass that all the places they were about the temple were burnt down and were become an intermediate desert place, ready for fighting on both sides, and that almost all the corn was burnt. They're burning all their supplies up, which they need. they got a sit. They got a siege going on which would have been sufficient for a siege. He goes, that would have been enough corn to last us of many years. So they were taken by the means of famine. So this is what's destroying the people inside the city, the famine. Which was impossible that they should have been unless they had thus prepared the way for it by procedure. In other words, they could have done just fine if they wouldn't have destroyed their own food. Now the famine during the Great Tribulation was predicted in Ezekiel 4, 10 through 12. And your food that you eat shall be by weight. Okay, if you're weighing your food, well, you're either on a strict diet or you're in famine, okay? 20 shekels a day, from day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen, from day to day you shall drink it. And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. Okay, that sound appetizing? It's the, it gets worse, okay. We also see this famine predicted by John in the Olivet Discourse, his Olivet Discourse of Revelation. Revelation 6, he says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. All right, a pair of scales is a symbol of famine. You got to weigh stuff. You got to measure stuff. This is famine, all right? And I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, 
a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This famine destroyed many in Jerusalem. After the horse of famine comes the horse of death. In verse 7 and 8. And he opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. So here we got the horse of death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So we got famine going on. Now listen, Revelation, I believe, is a divorce decree against Israel. It's not about our future. It's not about the world. God is saying, I'm divorcing Israel. I'm destroying Israel. She's unfaithful. She's an adulterous wife, putting her to an end. Now Josephus records the history that bears out the fulfillment of these awful prophecies. He says, by reason, the city was all walled about. Some persons were driven to that terrible distress as to search the common sewers and old dunghills of cattle and to eat the dung which they got there. All right, there's, these people are, are so hungry. They're going through the sewers. They're going through the dunghills and they're eating crap, okay, <laughs> trying to stay alive. He says, and what they of old could not endure so much as to see, they now use for food. They, didn't even, they couldn't stand to look at this stuff before, and now they're eating it. The depth of this famine is brought out by Josephus very clearly in the gut-wrenching story that he tells of Mary. He says this, Now there was a certain woman that dwelt beyond Jordan. Her name was Mary. Her father was Eleazar, or the village of Bethzeb, which signifies the house of Hyssop. She was eminent for her family, and her wealth. So here we've got this wealthy woman, Mary. And it actually fled away to Jerusalem. What did the Lord say do? Get go the opposite way. She goes to the city. Now I said, this was your natural reaction. We got a war going on. Let's get in the fortress. That's the safest place to be. That's why the Lord said, Don't do it. She goes in there with the rest of the multitude. And was with them besieged therein at this time. The other effects of this woman had been already seized upon. Such I mean as she had brought with her out of Perea and removed to the city. What she had treasured up besides, as also what food she had contrived to save, had also been carried off by the rapacious guards who came every day running into her house for that purpose. This put the poor woman in a very great passion. In other words, the guards kept coming every day, seeing the shabby food, and so this puts her in a great passion, which means she's giving these guards what for, okay? And by what the frequent reproaches and imprecations she cast at these rapacious villains, she had provoked them to anger against her. She's just making these guards even matter, which is not a really smart idea. But none of them, either out of the indignation she had raised against herself or out of the compassion of her case, would take away her life. They don't want to kill her. She's much more miserable alive. And if she found any food, she perceived her labors were for others and not for herself, because the guards would just take it. And it was now become impossible for her anyway to find any more food while the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow. 
when also her passion was fired to a degree beyond the famine itself, nor did she consult with anything but her passion and the necessity she was in. She then attempted a most unnatural thing, and snatching up her son, who was a child sucking at her breast, she said, O thou miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve thee in this war, this famine and this sedition? As to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we must be slaves. The famine also will destroy us even before that slavery comes upon us. Yet are these seditious rogues more terrible than both the other. Come on, be thou my food. She's talking to her child. And be thou a fury to those seditious varlets. And a byword to the world, which is all that is now waiting to complete the calamities of the Jews. As soon as she had said this, she slew her son and then roasted him and ate one half of him. Yeah. And kept the other half by her concealed. Upon this, the seditious came in presently, the guards come in, and smelling the horrid scent of this food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten ready. She replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them. I mean, she's just tormenting these guards so badly. And withal uncovered what was left of her son. Hereupon they were seized with horror and amazement of mind and stood astonished at the sight. And when she said to them, This is my own son, and what hath been done was my own doing. Come, eat this food, for I have eaten it myself. Do not you pretend to be either more tender than a woman? a more compassionate than a mother? But if you be so scrupulous and do not abominate this my sacrifice as I have eaten the one half, let the rest be reserved for me also. After which those men went out trembling, being never so much affrighted at anything as they were at this. And with some difficulty they left the rest of that meat to the mother. He goes on to say, Upon which the whole city was full of horrid action immediately. In other words, the word spread everywhere. People were just freaking out about this. And while everyone laid this miserable case before their own eyes, they trembled as if this unheard of action had been done by themselves. Though those that were thus distressed by the famine were very desirous to die. And those already dead were esteemed happy because they had not lived long enough either to hear or to see such miseries. Now, this is Josephus writing, this is happening in the city. Listen to Deuteronomy 28 again, the covenantal blessings and cursings. Deuteronomy 28, 53, and you shall eat the fruit of your womb and the flesh of your sons and daughters. God promised this. This is part of the curse, all right? Whom Yahweh your God has given you, in the siege, all right, this is going on right now. The siege is happening. He said, you're going to eat your sons and daughters in the siege. And in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. So if you don't obey me, this is part of the destruction you will face. Drop down to 57. He says, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet, 
and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly. So he says the woman's going to eat her afterbirth. She's going to eat her children. In the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. Now, I would strongly encourage you to read Deuteronomy 28 in its entirety. All right, keeping in mind all we've discussed today. And I hope you're just beginning to see and understand the wrath that Paul said was coming upon the Jews at last. All these things the Jews have done, they've killed the Christ, they killed the prophets. And wrath is coming upon them. You know, I think when you read Deuteronomy 28, in an un- don't be distracted by anything. Get yourself so you can just focus on the text and read the text. It's a long passage. But realize, in the first 14 verses, God says, if you obey me, man, blessing after blessing after blessing after... Then 15, it switches. But if you will not obey me, you will be cursed. And then he lists all the cursings. I think that, you know, today we have to put that in our own lives. So we obey the Lord. Our, our life is blessed. Okay? As Christians, you can choose to obey God or not. And if you don't obey God as a Christian, you're going to suffer for it. In this life here and now. Your eternity is secure as a child of God. But the way we live our lives affects the quality of the lives we have. And the closer you walk with God in this life, the more blessed your life is going to be. Even if you're going through difficulties, it's still going to be blessed. Paul was unaffected by circumstances because he was walking in fellowship with Yahweh. Israel had crucified the Lord. They crucified the God-man, their Savior, their Redeemer. They did it publicly, and not only did they do that, they called God's judgment down on themselves. Matthew 27, 25, And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And Josephus said, that's exactly what happened. God's judgment on Israel in AD 70, it matched their crime. They crucified the Lord of glory. This crime was the worst crime in history. So their punishment is also the worst in history. And to call anything else the great tribulation is to downplay the immensity of that generation's guilt, is to downplay the crucifixion of the Lord that they committed. Joseph Ernest Renan who was a Semitic scholar, an expert of Semitic language, said this. He said, from this time forth, talking about the siege in Jerusalem, hunger, rage, despair, and madness dwelt in Jerusalem. It was a cage of furious maniacs, a city resounding with howling and inhabited by cannibals. They're eating each other. A very hell. Titus, for his part, was atrociously vindictive. Every day, 500 unfortunates were crucified in the sight of the city with hateful refinements of cruelty or sufficient ground whereupon to erect them. In other words, anybody that was escaping from the city, he's crucifying outside the city. So you're in the city, you got all this horror going on inside. You look outside and people are being crucified, which is the worst form of death you can imagine. Crosses just everywhere around the city, crucifying the people that left. 
said, make you just want to kill yourself, okay? Now, hopefully you're a thinking individual. (laughs) That educational study found that only 5% of people think. 15% of people think they think. 85% 85% of the people would rather die than think, or 80% would rather die than think, okay? And I find that true. I mean, most people just don't think. They don't think about life. They don't think about what's happening around them. They don't look. They don't think things. They don't ask questions. They just follow along, okay? But if you're thinking, maybe you're saying, well, okay, I understand this at Jerusalem, and it was horrible there, but how did what happened in Jerusalem affect the people in Thessalonica? And they're a long ways from Jerusalem, Right? Well, here's what you need to realize. And we went over this a couple weeks ago. That, that, the coming of Christ affected cosmic powers. It affected so many things, all right? But we need to realize the scope of God's wrath and the great tribulation upon the people of Israel. It was not just those in Jerusalem that suffered and died. Also, those all over Palestine. The whole country felt the wrath of God. Josephus said this, There was not a Syrian city which did not slay their Jewish inhabitants and were more bitter enemies to us than were the Romans themselves. Everybody's just killing these Jews. Now remember, the Jews are in Jerusalem for a feast day. They're being slaughtered in this slaughter. All the cities around them, they're killing all the Jewish inhabitants. The Jews are just literally being wiped out. David Clark wrote this. He said, it is doubtful if anything before or since has equaled it for ruthless slaughter and merciless destruction. From the locality of these churches in Asia Minor. Now here he's talking about the seven churches that Revelation was written to in Asia Minor. Again, a long ways from Jerusalem. To the borders of Egypt, the land was a slaughterhouse. Okay, so this, is, this great tribulation, don't think of it as all oh, this city got destroyed. No, a people got destroyed all over the place because of the wrath of God. He said city after city was wrecked, sacked, and burned till it was recorded that cities were left without an inhabitant. What I want you to see, what I want you to understand, the destruction of Jerusalem was far more than the destruction of an ancient city. Jerusalem and the temple were the center of worship of Yahweh. The God of gods, the Lord of lords. With its destruction came a covenantal change. God's kingdom was taken from the Jews. And no longer would Gentiles rule over God's kingdom because his kingdom was now a spiritual kingdom. Entered not by a physical birth, but by a spiritual birth. The old heavens and earth of Judaism were destroyed. And the new heavens and earth of spiritual Israel were established. It signaled the end of an age. And God had utterly destroyed the physical temple. With the temple's destruction, the genealogical records which qualified descendants of Aaron to serve as a priest were all destroyed. So now how do we know who's a priest? Who can be a priest? We don't know. The records are gone. And you can't be a priest without proving your genealogy. The old system of worship was forever shut down. Now many today, most today, within churchianity, believe that Israel is still God's people. Okay? We need to protect Israel, we need to stand, we need to do all, you know. They believe there's a future for ethnic Israel, for national Israel. 
John MacArthur expresses this sentiment when he writes, You say, is that all there is for Israel? No, he says. Romans 11 says someday in the future, he's talking about our future, all Israel will be saved. God will not be unfaithful to his original promise. God must keep his word. Of course he will. He does keep his word. The problem is you've misunderstood his word. That's the great problem. And so we misunderstand the word of God and then we say, well, God has to do this. No, he does not have to do that. John is wrong here. Yahweh is finished. Listen, he's finished with national Israel. He's finished with ethnic Israel. Now, some may say, well, what about Romans eleven twenty six? All Israel will be saved, it says. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Dispensationalism says that at the end of the church age, the church is going to be raptured out, right? And God will once again begin to deal with national Israel. See, here's how they see it. You know, you read the time statements, soon, quickly, shortly, this generation... Pretty hard to get over. Most people just ignore them. But dispensationalism says, yes, that those time statements are true. But see, the clock stopped. So it's soon, but everything, all time stops. So we're still, it doesn't count as soon until the clock starts again. So God stopped the clock. Time out, time out, time out. I'm going to go deal with the church now. You guys are messed up. I'm going to deal with the church. So he deals with the church for a couple thousand years. Then he raptures the church out. Okay, start the clock. Now we're back on soon. Okay, that's how dispensationalism sees it. All right. And they think that during the tribulation, many Jews are going to be saved. And the millennium will be a time of Jewish dominance. They say, and so all Israel be saved refers to Israel being restored as a nation, a people of God. Listen, there's nothing in the text of Romans about national Israel. Paul opened his argument with a very clear signal that he was redefining Israel. Israel, and Paul does this everywhere, but just Romans 9, 6 is a key verse. If you don't understand this verse, you're not going to understand who Israel is. He says, first of all, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. All right, Paul, in Romans 9, Paul's giving a theodicy, a defense of God. And he says, wait a minute, people, it's, God's Word hasn't failed. And see, that's just what MacArthur says. Well, no, God has to keep His Word. They misunderstood the Word. See, God made all these promises to Israel, and now they're saying, well, Israel's being wiped out, and, and, we're, and the, all these promises are going to the Gentiles. So, you know, Paul said, no, no, it ha- it's not like the Word of God failed. Let me explain it to you, he says. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, who's descended from Israel? Israelites, right? But not all Israelites belong to Israel. How's that, how could that be? Because there's two Israels. There's national Israel and there's spiritual Israel. And the promises were always to spiritual Israel. A believing remnant within national Israel. He was telling them that the physical descent didn't mean that they were the true people of God. To them it was all about bloodlines. And I see here all Israel as referring to the remnant of the house of Israel, the remnant of the house of Judah, and all believing Gentiles. All Israel is all true Israel, all spiritual Israel, all those who are united to Christ by faith. Yahweh ended his relationship with national Israel in AD 70. Ended it forever. No more Jews. There's no more 
racial Jews today. There's no more national Israel. That is all done. Since AD 70, the destruction of the temple, Judaism has no priest and has offered no sacrifices. Okay? I want you to look at what the Lord said in Matthew 5. He says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, until this happens, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, the Lord's saying, listen, the law of God, the Torah, will not change until heaven and earth passes away. So if heaven and earth has not passed away, then Torah is still established, still pertinent today. Because Yeshua said nothing would change until it happened. So let me ask you this question. Has Torah changed since AD 70? Has Judaism changed since AD 70? Absolutely. There is nothing about Judaism today that resembles Torah. Okay? How do you have Judaism with no temple? How do you have Judaism with no priests? With no sacrifices? <coughs> every day in Judaism, every day, two lambs were sacrificed. Minimum. Morning and evening. Every day. Since AD 70, you know how many lambs have been sacrificed? Zero. It's done. God made it so clear. I'm done with this. How clear can I make it? There's no altar. There's no priest. There's no sacrifice. I'm done. Hello, McFly, wake up. There's nothing. It's over. The sacrifice and the priesthood were the heart of Israel. And all that has been fulfilled in Christ because it all pointed to Christ, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Once he came, guess what? You don't need shadows anymore. You don't need types anymore. That's over. And listen, those who call themselves Jews today, they're not Jews. Racially, ethnically. We've gone over this before. Those who say they're living under Torah, they are just a cult of Christ rejecting God-haters. Okay? Because since Messiah showed up, since his ministry started, if you reject Messiah, you reject God. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. So those Israelites, faithful Israelites who were serving God, when Messiah showed up, they believed in Messiah, or they no longer were part of the people of God. Because when Messiah came, things changed. So either you take Messiah by faith and believe He is the Messiah, or you die. You're just a like I said, a God-rejecting Christ-hater. That's what Israel is today. Israel hates Christians. It's, it's unlawful to proselyte over in Israel. You can't talk about your Christian faith. And we got all these preachers, oh, pray for Israel, support Israel. Do Nonsense. They're done. God is done with that. Their religion today, the Jewish religion, is that of their own making. Totally made up. They took stuff out of Torah and said, well, let's do this instead. Let's do that instead. Well, we're not killing things anymore. We don't have a priesthood anymore. We don't do it. So we'll just, no altar, no temple, nothing. So we'll just fake it from here on out. Yahweh put all that to an end with the consummation of the new covenant. In his book, City of Ruins, Mourning the Destruction of Jerusalem Through Jewish Apocalypse, Derek Dashka wrote this. The tragedy that befell the ancient Judaic religious system was a symbolic loss of the highest order. 
It was much more than a symbolic loss, okay? It offered a stark choice. This is the choice that happened in 8070. Reinvent the Yahwistic worldview or be lost forever. And so this is exactly what Judaism did. They reinvented their own religion that was nothing like what God told them to do. God says we have to do this sacrifice. We can't do it. So we'll just pretend and do something different. Judaism as a religion and ethnic Jews as a people all ended in AD 70. And it's foolish to pretend there's some people over there that God still has covenants. No! The true Israel of God are those who believe in Christ. God's wrath came upon Christ's rejectors and ended that system forever. There's no more rebuilt temple. We are the temple of God. God dwells. Paul taught that so clearly. The new covenant was fully consummated in AD 70, and all believers now dwell in the kingdom of God where we are the temple. Let me tell you something, believer, and get a hold of this and hang on to it. You are sacred space. Sacred space, where God dwells. You. Hmm. Selah. Meditate on that, okay? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. I, I just seems so clear to me, Father. I, I pray if I'm wrong here that you would correct me, you would direct me in the, down the proper path. But, Father, I see throughout your scripture. Israel was a type, was a shadow. You finished with that, you moved on. The reality is Christ. Christ is the true Israel of God and all who put their faith in Him. Father, I thank You. I praise You for allowing us to be part of Your church, Your body, that in eternity past, You chose us to be Your family. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen.